Well, it's great to be back. I don't know if you've noticed that the uh, new year is really not that new. It's just kind of like last year with a new, you know, you just flip the calendar. Uh, it's the same struggles, it's the same bills, it's the same people to deal with. January hasn't changed that. Um, you ever wonder why God seems to work in everybody else's life but yours? <laughs> you know, we listen to the praises in this class, and uh, sometimes you'll, you'll hear someone share their good news. And after you think, oh, that's great, you think, wait a minute, why doesn't that happen in my life? We hear wonderful answers to prayer, exceptional testimonies, and sometimes they can have the opposite effect of their intent. We're hopeful to hear other people's good news and that it encourages us, but if we're not careful, we can hear other people's good news and it can be extremely discouraging as envy, flat-out envy, um, overshadows our hearts. So in this new year, as we look to the next 12 months, um, I'd like us to turn to the book of Mark and chapter 5 and talk about what happens when you need to borrow a miracle. Don't have a miracle in your life? Well, we can borrow one. You can borrow one. So far in the book of Mark and the gospel of Mark, we've looked Jesus has appeared on the scene, has offered the kingdom of God to Israel, has validated that he really can deliver on that offer by uh, doing all these miracles and healing people and great teaching. But the desire that people had was pretty much, well, it's great that you're teaching. And that's, you're a good teacher, Jesus. Appreciate it. But honestly, I, I want you to heal. I want you to, to deal with my physical needs. I want you to deal with the immediate. Heaven will come soon enough. That's great. The kingdom of God, really looking forward to that. But you know, I'd really like to be healed, or I'd like my family member to be healed. And Jesus did this initially to validate that the offer of the kingdom that he was giving to Israel, he could actually deliver on. Until chapter 3, we looked at chapter 3 when the religious leaders said, you know, you're doing these miracles by the power of Satan. And Christ basically says, you know, if you persist in that view, the kingdom is not going to be given to this generation, it's going to be given to a generation in the future. And Christ begins more and more now to withdraw his offer of the kingdom to Israel and to prepare for plan B, which in God's mind was plan A all along, not that the kingdom wouldn't be given to Israel, but that it would be delayed for an indeterminate period of time during which the, uh, the church, or, or Christ would build his church, focusing primarily on the Gentiles and bringing them into the fold. And so Christ taught a series of parables in which he explained that, that parenthesis, you might say, in God's grand plan. And we looked at those, um, those parables. And right after those, the parables, he tells his disciples, hop in a boat, we're going to go over to the other side. And so they hop in a boat and they go out in the middle and a bad storm comes up. And they say, Lord, don't you care? We're going to die. And he says, don't you have faith? And he calms the storm. Immediately it's calm. 
and it says that they're completely astonished and amazed. And then chapter 5, verse 1, it says, They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. So what Christ said he, he wanted to do, chapter 4, verse 35, let's go to the other side, he actually could do, even though there was a storm, a great and terrible storm in between. And it says that they came into the country of the Gerasenes. Mark calls it the Gerasenes. If you were to read Matthew's gospel, it's the country of the Gadarenes. And there's actually kind of a, a textual issue that's pretty thorny here. In other words, it's hard to really know what the original says. But w what makes most sense, I think, in explaining it, sort of like when you do when you travel. Like when you go overseas or even to another part of the country and people say, where are you from? You don't say Frisco or Kathy and I don't say Aubrey. People don't even know where Aubrey is many up here. We say Dallas. We just say we're from Dallas because no one really cares where you're from. <laughs> they, just, they just want to know generally speaking. So, so you say Dallas and that's good enough. But if somebody says, oh, Dallas, I used to live in Farmer's Branch. Then you can say, okay, well, we live in Aubrey. <laughs> but when you're talking to someone that isn't familiar with the area, you give generalities. And that's what Mark was doing, because Mark very likely was written in Rome to Christians who were Gentiles and who wouldn't have been familiar with the geography of Israel. But even Gentiles knew where Jerash was. And if you can go to the modern city of uh, the modern country of Jordan today and visit Jerash, it's a huge Greco-Roman city. The remains are astounding, and this is what Mark's referring to. So he refers to the general area, but Matthew, writing to Jews who was more familiar with the actual area, um, would would have used the more specific reference, and that's that's why there's very likely a difference there. So. Mark says they come to the country of the Gerasenes, or very specifically to the area around Gadara. If you were to go to the uh, Sea of Galilee today, your tour group will probably take you at least by or at the site called Kersey, which, which is where this, um, this incident occurred. Well, let's read the incident now. Verse 2. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he, had in, and, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones." Really, if you look at the details of this poor individual, it's pathetic in the, in the, real, in the real sense of the word. It, it, it brings pathos or, or compassion. This individual, and Matthew actually mentions more than one man, but Mark focuses on the individ, this individual man because he's the one doing the talking. And this poor guy was so demented by these evil spirits that he couldn't even live among people. He lived among the tombs. He wore these shackles that whenever he had the shackles, he would break them off. 
and he was screaming. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being in such a condition, so tormented by evil spirits, that he lived among the tombs, and constantly, night and day, he was screaming and gashing himself with stones. It's a helpless condition, a hopeless condition, and it's meant, the details are given here to give us the compassion for this man. Well, look what happened. Verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you evil spirit. He's, the demon, using the man's vocal cords, says, calls Jesus, son of the most high God. That is dead on accurate. The demons knew who Jesus was. In fact, James says they know, who, they know who God is and they shudder. They have a very clear view of who Jesus is, even though everyone else is not so sure just yet. And they say, I implore you, do not torment me. Matthew adds the phrase, do not torment me before the time. Meaning there comes a time, and the demons know it, when Jesus is going to assign them to a place of torment. In fact, Peter writes that there are some already in a place of torment. It's a really unusual word called Tartarus. It's a, a place of torment. It's a place of the dead. It's a place where there are some demons already. They were, they were so bad at some point that they are already there, and they're there to stay. And these demons evidently are saying, look, we know that's our ultimate destination. Please don't send us there yet. This is what they were asking. And Jesus, because Jesus has said, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Verse 9, he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. A Roman legion had up to about 6,000 soldiers. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that he had 6,000 demons in him. Uh, we're going to see here in a little bit that there were 2,000 pigs that, that were inhabited by these demons here in a minute. But for whatever reason, we can understand that there were many demons inside this poor man. Um, verse 10, he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out of the unclean spirits, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. This is the first incident, by the way, of deviled ham. <laughs> Don't act like you've never heard that before. But you have to say it. When you go to the Sea of Galilee today, there's really only one place that this could have happened. The geography around the lake, uh, there is only one place that has a steep bank that's this close enough to the lake. And it, it's the place of Kersey. It's the place around which Mark and Matthew refer. And it's Gentile territory. 
Remember Jesus and the apostles in the previous chapter, in that long day that we spent several weeks looking at. Jesus got the sense he understood that the nation was going to reject him. And as a result, he knew that the, that the Jews were going to reject him. Now Jesus begins his ministry of training his 12 disciples for the age of the church in which the Gentiles are going to play the role of, of the protagonist in God's plan. And one of the ways he does that is he puts them in a boat and he immediately takes them over to Gentile territory to begin to train them in doing ministry to Gentiles. And he gets out and he, he casts out the demons that were in this poor man. And the demons rush down, uh, enter the pigs and rush down and are killed. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but when angels appear... They can appear all on their own. Have you noticed that in the scriptures? Sometimes they appear all on their own, either as angels in their form of glory, and people always hit the deck in terror, or sometimes godly angels will disguise themselves as people. You'll see that in the book of Genesis. That occurred a couple times, and also the book of Hebrews says that sometimes we entertain angels without knowing it. But demons do not have that, um, that ability, or that permission, I should say. Whenever a demon appears in the scripture, the demon always has to have someone to possess, or something to possess. You won't see any exception. And if you do, please tell me, I've never found one. And that's good, because you know, you're not just going to be walking down the road one day and a demon comes around the corner, like that could happen with an angel. A demon always had to possess something, whether it was a person, like this poor man, or whether it was an animal like these swine. And the fact that the demons entered the swine, when a Jew would read this, of course, you're aware that a, a swine, a pig, was unclean. It's in Gentile territory, and so the, these pig farmers were just doing what Gentiles do. But for imagine the 12 disciples, you know, as they're there, it's like not only do, are we dealing with demons, but now the demons enter a pig. We're talking not only unclean, but really unclean, about as unclean as it gets. And they rush down the hill. Can you imagine the squealing that would have happened? And they hit the water and drown. So how do the herdsmen react to this? Verse 14, the herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. Now, it may seem kind of a throwaway statement to add that and about the swine, but this was 2,000 pigs. Imagine if you owned 2,000 pigs and Jesus just killed them all, if you think of it that way. Honestly, when it says in verse 17 that they began to implore him to leave their region, it likely wasn't because he had healed one of their citizens who was oppressed. 
but rather it was that he had taken away this herd of swine. Their primary concern of these people wasn't the man who had been relieved of the demons. Their primary concern was finances. And they began to implore him to leave their region. It's interesting in verse 15, into verse 15, it says that they became frightened. See that word? Look back up in chapter 4, verse 41, the very last verse. After Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples, we're told, became very much afraid. That's the same word. In fact, it's exactly the same word, same tense and everything. You've got the apostles who view the miracle of Jesus calming the storm and his great authority, and then you have these individuals who observed the man who had been demon-possessed who became very frightened as well. It's the exact same word. The power of Jesus Christ was absolutely overwhelming, both to the apostles as well as to these Gentile people. Jesus had mercy on this poor man, and as those of us who have had Jesus had mercy on our lives, we have a very similar desire, and that's to follow Christ. Verse 18, as, they were, as he was getting into the boat to leave, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he didn't let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Christ said, tell everybody what the Lord has done. And the man went and told what Jesus had done. Really, it's the same thing. And you know, there's no record that Christ ever returned to this area. They asked him to leave, and he was barely out of the boat, and he hopped back in the boat. Jesus wants to be part of your life. But if you ask him to leave, he may do it. He may do it. He's there to bring mercy. He's there to bring healing. He's there to offer you deliverance. But if you don't want him, he's not going to force his way in. We're going to look at a total of three stories here today. We've seen this first one. There's a couple of more here in this chapter, and then we're going to tie it all together because it's really one thread that's weaving its way through this text. So let's keep reading. Verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please, come and lay your hands on her, so that she will get well and live. Have you ever been to the funeral of a child? You know, it's one thing to go to the funeral of someone um, who has lived their life, to someone who has lived a full and long life, and even though we weep and we're sad, there's a sense of completion. There's a sense of fullness. It's still really hard, but 
there's a sense of completion of a life well lived. But for a child, I remember the very first funeral I did as a minister was for a baby. And the parents' walk with God was not very strong, and it absolutely devastated them. There's nothing I could say that gave them comfort. In fact, it was almost like talking of God was almost mocking because God was so uh, seemingly powerless to stop this tragic event. You know, over the last three weeks, my brother-in-law connected with us. My brother-in-law and my sister live out in uh, Los Angeles area, and they contacted us about their baby girl, 17-month-old Margaret. Um, somehow contracted meningitis. And they took her to a hospital and began doing the work, first of all, just to try to save her life, and then to get antibiotics into her system to fight the infection. And so anyway, many of us were praying, and it looks like Margaret is going to live, but the damage to her system and to her brain may be permanent. And so the doctor says that she's going to have to continue learning. She's going to have to basically start over with her learning. The good, the good news is that she's young, obviously, and the brain is very resilient, and hopefully she'll be able to have a full and normal life. But I thought about this passage. I thought about how we feel when the Lord in his sovereign plan allows terrible things to happen to children. It's very difficult to wrap our arms around it. This is what Jairus faced. This is the helplessness of a father who loves his daughter, his child, and can do nothing to stop this horrible event. He tells Jesus, my child is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hand on her so that she will get well and live. So Jesus does, verse 24. And he went off with them, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. So we're introduced to this story within a story. Jesus leaves to go be with Jairus. And this woman forces her way through the crowd. I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd like this, but when you have a crowd that is pressing in on you, it's sort of scary. Uh, if you've ever been in a situation like that where the crowd moves you, you don't move, but the crowd is moving you. And your job is to stand upright because they're the ones that are moving you around. This is what Jesus is dealing with. And this woman, we're told, has this issue of blood, this hemorrhage. Um, it's, it wasn't just a physical discomfort, as you can imagine that it would be, but it had amazing social and spiritual implications. In the book of Leviticus, we're told that a woman with an issue of blood was not allowed in the tabernacle, or in this context, in the temple, because the only blood that was allowed in the temple was sacrificial blood. Any other blood wasn't allowed. That's why whenever, even during a woman's normal cycle, she wasn't allowed to go in and worship 
until the cycle was over and she was cleansed, then she could go in. And so for a woman to have an issue of blood for 12 years, that meant that for 12 years, this woman could not go to the temple in Jerusalem and worship. For 12 years, she couldn't go. It also meant, Leviticus said, that a husband and wife were not to have relations while she had an issue of blood. So if she was married, and likely she wasn't, but even if she was married, there was this restriction as well. She would not be able to have children. Not only that, but Leviticus says that anything she touches becomes unclean while she's in this state. Not only that, we're told that she had spent all her money on physicians. And along with all the, the, um, the primitive indignities that that would have included, were said that no one could heal her. Luke, the Gospel of Luke says of her condition that no one could heal her and that she actually got worse. She suffered, think about it, financially, socially. She couldn't touch anybody. Uh, maritally and spiritually and of course emotionally this woman was struggling for 12 years think about where you were 12 years ago imagine for 12 years dealing with this look how Mark refers to it in verse 26 we read it but look at it again she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Mark emphasizes that this woman was absolutely desperate. Humanly speaking, she had done all she could do, and it was completely inaccurate. There was no more desperate place for her to be, and so all she could do was come to Jesus Christ. Look at what happens here in verse 27. And after hearing about Jesus... She came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? It's that sense of when you're in this crowd and it's like, well, who hasn't touched you? Jesus didn't mean who touched me. He meant, who did I heal? And Jesus didn't really even mean who did I heal because he knew he wanted the woman to come forward. And that's that's what she would end up doing. This public event, she would have had to press in upon the people so thick, and every person, remember, every person she touched, she was making unclean as she made her way to Jesus. And they didn't know it. Every person that she touched, she was now making ceremonially unclean and unfit until they were cleansed to go and worship in the temple. But she was so convinced that Jesus could heal her, she thought, all I need to do is touch him. In fact, I just need to touch the edge of his garment, and that's all it'll take. And that's all it took. And she immediately knew that she'd been healed, and Jesus immediately knew that he had healed, but nobody else knew anything. 
She knew, Jesus knew, nobody else knew. So when the disciples, when, when Jesus asked, who touched, who touched me, the disciples uh, say, well, of course, everyone's touched you. But Jesus meant something more specific. Look at verse 32. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. He knew who it was. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The whole truth. How embarrassing would that have been? The whole truth. And everyone would have heard. Jesus' searching eyes scanned the crowd and locked on the woman, and she came and faced down before Jesus, afraid. Why was she afraid? She was afraid because she knew what she had done. It wasn't just the desire to be healed, but in order to be healed, she had made who knows how many people unclean. And when they found out about it, because she told the whole truth, she, she, what would the, imagine the gasps that would have happened. Imagine the frustration, even the anger that would have happened. She comes trembling because she fully expects to be rebuked by Jesus. Who touched me? That's all she heard. And she comes up, falls before him, and explains the whole truth. But instead of a rebuke, look at how Jesus responds in verse 34. He said to her, Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Daughter. It's a very tender word. It's a word of acceptance. It's a word of inclusion. It's a word of acceptance and not rejection. See, Christ made a big deal about having her come forward, not to embarrass her, but so that she wouldn't go away feeling like, I snuck this healing and I really shouldn't have had it. I didn't deserve this healing. And she would go the rest of her life with this feeling of guilt. I made all these other people unclean so that I could get my healing. He brings her forward publicly so that publicly he can tell her three things. First of all, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. It's the idea of complete healing. We're not just talking physical, but also spiritual. Second, he tells her, go in peace. Go in peace. She was healed, but she came fearful and trembling. Jesus says, go in peace. You're not just free from the anxiety of feeling like you've made everybody else unclean, but now you can go in peace with a right relationship with God. Now she could be social again. She could touch people. She could hug people. Now, if she's married, she and her husband can move forward like a married couple. Or if she's not married, she can get married. But most importantly, now she could go to Jerusalem during the feasts and worship. And she can offer the peace offering to God, celebrating that God has accepted her. But Christ's final statement must have been so encouraging to her. Go be healed of your affliction. Jesus knew all about it. Be healed of your affliction. He freely gave it, and it was God's will. He wanted her to come forward and to confess it all or to 
to explain it all so that he could give her the peace of departing not with guilt but with grace. Now, remember Jairus? He's standing there going, tapping his feet, wringing his hands. This is great, Christ, but remember who was here first. Remember who was in line first. Let's say amen and move on. My, my daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. And notice verse 35. In the midst of such an exciting moment came the worst news. While he, while Jesus was still speaking, verse 34, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? While Jesus was delaying and healing this woman, in fact, while he was speaking the wonderful words of verse 34, someone came up to Jairus. As Jesus, imagine this, as Jesus was saying the good words to the woman, at that moment, someone was speaking the horrible words to Jairus. As Jesus was saying, daughter, you are healed, Jairus was hearing, your daughter has died. At the same moment, Mark says. One utter joy at a 12-year-old malady healed. Another, other devastation, utter devastation that a 12-year-old daughter had died. But note verse 36. But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. You should have a margin note there for believe that literally the word is keep on believing. It doesn't mean begin believing, but when he says only believe, he means keep on believing. Jesus knew that Jairus had faith. He was telling him, don't let this dissuade you. Keep on believing. Jairus' heart must have lost all hope when he heard these words from the, the messengers. And that's why Jesus turned and spoke to Jairus' heart, do not be afraid, keep on believing. I asked you up front, you ever wonder why God works in other people's lives and not yours? Jesus' answer, Jesus answered her prayers, but Jairus, it seemed, missed out. This woman had been praying for 12 years. No doubt she'd been praying for 12 years for healing. Why didn't God heal her? For 12 years, God said no. And yet one day, all of a sudden, God said yes. <clears throat> said yes to her prayers, but Jairus' daughter died. What do you do when someone ans God answers someone else's prayers, but yours are left unanswered? Well, here's a principle that this text teaches us, and I hope that you will remember it and apply it in your life, because I promise you, you will have many opportunities. And here it is. Use unanswered prayer, I'm sorry, use answered prayer in the lives of others as encouragement for your own unanswered prayers. See, when somebody answers the prayers of somebody else, when, when God answers the prayers of somebody else, it's not just for them, it's for you. He is encouraging you. It's as if Jesus has answered the prayers to one person and then he turns to you in that same moment, because remember, it was in the same moment that the, that the good news and the bad news happened, in the same instant. 
Jesus turned and he said, don't be afraid, keep on believing. That's what Christ is telling you. Maybe, maybe the Spirit of God is telling you that today, right now, from the truth of the Scripture. You hear the good news of people giving praises in this class, and you think, well, that's great, but what about me, Lord? Somebody experiences a great turnaround in their life or a great windfall or some great answer to prayer, and you think, Lord, I've been praying about this for 12 years. What about me? What Jesus said to Jairus is what Jesus says to you. Don't be afraid. Keep on believing. Keep on believing. So look at what happens now. Verse 37. He allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official. And he saw a commotion and the people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. He began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own, it took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Jesus makes the crowd leave. It's not a sideshow. And he takes the dead girl's parents and Peter, James, and John only. Incidentally, this is sort of a sidebar, but notice in verse 37 it says he... he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. By the name James, you probably have a um, little footnote that says, or Jacob. Anytime in the New Testament the word James appears, it's really Jacob. But you know why it says James? Because King James, when he translated the Bible, wanted his name in there. And anytime Jacob appears... Uh, well, let's just put James in. I kid you not. That's why, that's where the name James came from. Good old King James. The only time that it actually says Jacob in the New Testament is when it's referring to the Old Testament character, and you got to say Jacob for that because those otherwise won't know who you're talking about. So, good old King James. You want your name in the Bible? It's good to be king. So it takes along Peter, James, Jacob, and and John and enters in with only the parents. And look at this wonderful scene now, verse 41. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Jesus was speaking from God's perspective when he said the child is not dead, she is asleep. Well, she was dead. So what did he mean when he said that she was asleep? Referring to sleep in the New Testament is an, an idiom. It's a, a, a euphemism for death. But it's also really a theological perspective because someone who sleeps awakes. And it's not a reference to the soul. It's a reference to the body. The body sleeps, but will awaken. Uh, keep your finger here in Mark and flip over 
if you would, to Revelation chapter 6. And I want to show you just for a second what Paul means when he writes those words, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Revelation chapter 6, just a quick little sidebar. Revelation 6, verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren uh, who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. These are Christians who will be martyred in the tribulation period, and their souls, we're told, are here before God crying out. So they're not sleeping. They are speaking to the Lord. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. This same group is further described. Chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Look at verse 13. One of the elders answered, saying to me, these are, these are who are clothed in the white robes. Who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. In other words, John saying, Why are you asking me? You know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they're Christians. For this reason, they are, present tense, before the throne, and they serve him, present tense, day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. So flip back to Mark. When a Christian dies, their body sleeps because it will awaken. But their soul, as Paul writes, is with the Lord. This little girl, we're told, uh, in fact, when Jesus raises this little girl from the dead, Luke says her spirit returns to her. And this is exactly what happens. Verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Interesting contrast, he tells them, don't tell anybody about this. And yet, remember when he healed the demoniac? He said, go back and tell everybody about this. Why? Because, first of all, he probably wasn't going to go into the area of the Gentiles again. At least it's not recorded that he did. But he left a witness. He left a guy who had been healed. Let me tell you what great things the Lord's done for me. But in this context of the Jews, this was probably Capernaum, the synagogue in Capernaum. Remember, Jesus wasn't trying to spread around that he was doing miracles. It was a private miracle of mercy for these parents, for these grieving parents, and the woman as well. It was a private miracle of mercy. Don't tell anybody. I don't want this to get around 
because my goal is not to simply heal, but it's to bring in the kingdom of God. Her spirit returned. You know, when the woman touched Jesus, she would have defiled him, but instead Jesus' touch made her clean. When Jesus touched this corpse, this dead girl, touching a corpse normally would defile you, but instead Jesus made her whole. In each case, what made the difference? It was faith. God, Jesus told the woman, your faith has saved you. To Jairus, he said, only believe. You know, we see from this text that you can be a man or a woman. You can be an adult or a child. You can be married or single. You can be rich or poor. You can be clean or unclean, prestigious or notorious, Jew or Gentile. We have all of that in chapter 5. And yet your need is exactly the same. You have a need for Christ. You have a complete need for Christ. And there's nothing that you can do to change your desperate situation apart from Him. Your need for Christ is, first of all, we think physical because that's what we feel. But your need for Christ is, first of all, spiritual. That is that you realize you can't live a good life and earn God's, earn God's favor because you've sinned. And the only way that you're going to be able to stand before God in heaven one day is because Jesus Christ has taken away your sins on the cross. And placing your faith in Him, of course, removes your sins from you, assigns them to Jesus Christ when He died on the cross, and now your sins are forgiven. And one day, you will be resurrected to stand before God as a whole person. You know, these people like you and me came to Jesus for physical healing. But you know what? The Gadarene demoniac, one day he's going to be buried in the very same tombs that he wandered around in. This sweet little girl who was raised from the dead, one day will die again. The woman who was healed of the issue of blood, she's probably going to get sick again at some point of something. They would all die again. When Jesus did these miracles, he was basically giving a, a preview of what he will do on a cosmic scale when he comes again for us. Listen to what Peter wrote. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read for you. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, I read that when Martin Luther uh, lost his daughter, Magdalena, she was ill with the plague, she was close to death, Luther begged for her life from God, and she died. And when the carpenters were nailing her coffin shut, Luther hollered out. He said, hammer away, because on judgment day she'll rise again. Whatever it is you're going through right now, maybe you're facing death, maybe you're facing some debilitating disease, or maybe you're praying for the young life of a, of a niece in Los Angeles. Whatever it is, if you don't have a miracle of your own, you can borrow a miracle. 
That is, you can realize Christ has said yes many times to others. He's not saying no because he doesn't love you. He's leaning over in your ear and saying, don't be afraid. Keep on believing. Let's pray. Lord, the new year is the same day for us. And yet we look ahead to this year and ask that by your grace you'd give us insight, not because the calendar is flipped over, but because we allow our minds to be renewed. We allow you to enter in in a new way, to open ourselves up to the truth of what the Bible says and not simply what we think. To believe, as Jesus said, and not to fear. Whatever it is we're facing, rather each of us brings our own incident whether it's like the demoniac who was cruelly oppressed or the father who was grieving the near loss and then loss of a child, or if it was or like this woman who was dealing with a debilitating social, financial, etc. situation. Everything's covered in this chapter to show that everything is covered by our Lord Jesus. We need him desperately and ask that you would give us relief, that you'd have mercy upon our individual requests. But ultimately, Lord, would you remind us that what we're longing for comes about and that great and glorious day, as Peter wrote, of the resurrection. And we look forward to that very much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.